the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Hello, and welcome back to the Jungle Times podcast. This is episode two and I've named it The Beautiful Planet. It could be subtitled On Good Governance and Nature. I'm your host, Lawrence Poole. In my last presentation, I told you that nature is the best management school known. It teaches us how to manage in a predatory prey environment. I explained that nature's law is survive and prosper. I also said nature is managing one system and millions of subsystems. That one system requires cooperation, creativity, and team spirit from all the subsystems. I told you that no one can break nature's laws, even if we can break ourselves against them. In this second episode, I'll explain how nature is managing its survive and prosper law. Let me start by saying that nature's management rule is called altruistic self-interest. That rule tells us that it is in the best interest of every member of a group to care for the needs of the whole group, and that this idea extends to the whole of nature. I told you last time that I have no problem with the concept. I've loved nature as far back as I can remember, and having visited a good deal of it, I have no doubt that this is a beautiful planet. I've committed some wondrous scenes to memory in the most beautiful places on Earth. Many of those scenes are unique, like every sunset or every sunrise I ever saw. But some of my memories are magical, like the aurora borealis when the sky is streaked pink, green, yellow. Other memories are spectacular, like a volcano exploding at night, not 300 meters from where I sat. Some are frightening, earthquakes and hurricanes, but even gathering clouds and torrential downpours offer wonder and awe. I recognize that when I see beauty in a forest, though, someone else will see lumber at a board foot price. That does not change the fact that the survive and prosper management rule applies to us all, in spite of our differing worldviews. To get it, though, you have to see survive as an ego thing. I survive. Individuals survive. Only when sufficient numbers of individuals make it Can we say that a species survived? A clear example is the American bald eagle. In the late 1960s, when the Endangered Species Act was created by the EPA, the bald eagle was prominent on the list. The eagle's population in the USA was then down to the last four to 500 birds. The US government acted to protect them, banning toxic pesticides and hunting them. And by the 1990s, the bird had recovered sufficiently that it was dropped from the endangered species list. Today, there are more than 75,000 bald eagles in the U.S. because sufficient numbers of individual birds survive. 
So now the species is safe. It is prospering. I, ego, survive. Having gone through the ordeal of a traumatic car accident, I know that. I also know that even if survival demands every ego assert his or her own interests, prosper is not even a concept that can be entertained by one, by an individual. Prosperity is a we word. Prosperity includes what Wikipedia describes as flourishing, thriving, good fortune, and successful social status. Social status is a measure of value. More specifically, this term refers to a level of respect, honor, assumed competence, and deference that is accorded to people, groups, and organizations in society. Who are your heroes? In fact, we are told that prosperity includes more than monetary factors. Prosperity includes being wealthy in terms of health and happiness, too. We should recognize that we prosper with others by working with them, trading with them, buying from them or selling to them, building with them. We employ others or are employed by them. We can go farther, faster, and for longer periods of time when we give value to others. Prosperity is a we word. No man is an island, wrote the poet John Donne. He wasn't being sexist. He meant to say no woman is either. His poem continues, Every island is a piece of a continent, a part of a main body. Folks, you've got to know that prosperity is larger than any one ego, that altruism is a part of nature's plan. The fact is, I adds value with others. Concerned with the whole system and all of the subsystem, nature's management rule is then altruistic self-interest. It is in one's best interest to work well with others. The creator's political intent is kind of clear. One planet, one people. This idea seems to break down with human beings. In episode one, I mentioned a study that reveals three kinds of humans who are engaged in nature's predatory prey relationship. We call them good people who generally answer nature's law with altruistic self-interest. My brother is myself. Bad people who generally lacked in their own selfish interests, me first, even if it's to the detriment of others, and stupid people who generally act to the detriment of others, even if it's in their own detriment as well, long as it's not you. The study warns us that stupid people are the most dangerous and that we are surrounded by more stupid people than we suppose. I confess that when I see how some of us are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, refusing to conform to the recommendations of experts with no care about who they put at risk, I have no doubt about the danger caused by stupidity. Predation is widespread in the animal world, and predators come from a great variety of species. By exploring the basics of predation, we can learn to avoid human predators. Think of serial killers or sexual stalkers as easy examples, but watch the Netflix series Dirty Money to learn about human predators in modern times. You can't believe that bankers or big pharma has your best interest in hearts, do you? Make a list of who's who among your acquaintances and take a guess. Who contributes beneficially to your relationship? Who is a predator? 
who is a parasite, and then see who you prey on, that is to say, who do you use in selfish ways. Human society can be thought of as a complex ecosystem. To the extent that we exploit each other, we have to admit that some of us are predators. If not, we are prey, and some will play both roles. We function in a wide variety of social classes, playing roles, having occupations and preoccupations, so we act differently depending on the situation. We prey on each other in ways that are classified as intragroup and intergroup predation. Intragroup predation, or within a society, occurs when members of one group prey on members of another. It happens by limiting people's rights, for example. Do we encourage financial inequalities or class divisions? Think of sex slavery or debt slavery. We overlook child predation. We victim shame. And we tolerate improprieties from higher-ups in the social hierarchy. The Internet has allowed scammers of every stripe to prey on the innocent and the naive. Trolls, fake news, lies, they abound on the Internet. Intergroup predation is when one society preys on another via raids or invasions or war. We colonize people. We plunder others' resources. We exacerbate racial divides. We impose unjust trade policies. We ban or limit immigration and much more. In addition to having another's will imposed on it, a preyed society can be absorbed into predator society to become its permanent underclass. Yes, folks, we live in jungle times, a dangerous world that is in a collision course with the ecological challenges that limit our further growth. These include climate change, mass migration, resource depletion, and social unrest. There are wars and rumors of wars. All these challenges tell us that we have to understand the predator-prey context of our lives a little bit better. This so we can predict, at least in broad strokes, where we should be headed, how to get there, and who can help. Of course, before you start accusing a brother-in-law or a neighbor of being a predator, you should recognize that a metaphor that classifies us as predatory animals needs a few caveats. Here are seven limits to the human as predator idea that the Resilience Alliance, they're a multidisciplinary research organization who explore ecosystems, they suggest we should consider, number one, that social roles that describe predator-prey relationships should not be interpreted as assigning a superiority or an inferiority to those roles. Two is that predator-prey relationships among humans are not biologically based, but instead are socially constructed. These relationships are subject to moral judgment, negotiation, resistance, and rebellion. Three says that human society currently is so complex that it's hard to know the predator from the prey in any given situation. As some people serve both functions in different aspects, rather than throw specific groups or occupations into question, it is more useful to identify the means of their exploitation, who profits from whom, and how. The fourth caveat suggests that differences in role and power among humans may not be metaphorically reducible to win-lose predation. It is likely that some behavior that appears predatory 
evolved to the advantage of the entire species. Five recognizes that some people might object to the metaphor of predation to describe them, because it seems inherently violent, while society is largely based on cooperation and collaboration. The sixth caveat says that it's important to acknowledge that humans have always been predators throughout history, and that we are omnivores. But as we harvest more of Earth's resources, we've become super predators. Finally, apart from these caveats, the need is to clarify how to use the metaphor and how not to. Business is an obvious and important subject area in which the predator-prey metaphor can yield important insights. Rather than survival of the strongest or the most ferocious that many people seem to believe, nature's law can in fact be stated as survival of the wisest, wisdom being the capacity to adapt to new conditions. If nature favored the strongest or most ferocious, dinosaurs would rule the world today. They're still here, but they are called fossil fuels. Dinosaurs once ruled, but when a change in conditions suddenly occurred, a meteor causing an ice age, not a single one of them had the brains to go out and buy a fur coat, so they were all wiped out. In fact, nature's law favors survival of the wisest. Learn to adapt. Nature tells us how to adapt to changing conditions. Adaptation is like working a muscle. The more we do it, the stronger we get. So nature favors the emergence of creative leaders as those who adapt the most often and the most successfully. It should be noted that the fruit of the labor, the result of always doing your level best, is that you acquire the habit of always doing your level best. Sweet, that's a winner's recipe. At this point, I recognize that my message isn't new. But in spite of the deep wisdom it carries, people largely ignore that adapting to nature's rule is in their own best interests. The jungle's management rule is altruistic self-interest. Whether or not we are ready, whether or not we like it, and even if we live in a predator-prey environment, there are no exceptions. Friends, no matter what they were taught in management schools, bad and stupid people tried to break the law. I've met corporate CEOs who don't care if the company goes bankrupt or not, and I've known others who cared more about their own perks and privileges than company performance or morale. Still others outsourced jobs and sold assets just to make a quick one-time profit, regardless of the effect on employees. I've also met political leaders later disgraced because they were caught in shady deals. It is clear to me that these people are not working in the best interest of all the stakeholders. I've also seen striking employees force a company into bankruptcy rather than compromise on a demand. Those union leaders didn't give much thought to the hardship members would inherit after the strike fund ran out. In the same way, we see large corporations watch their best people quit because work conditions are so terrible. It seems to me that nature's expectations for good governance breaks down with our species. Many people don't consider the effect of their behavior on others, and this explains why we face so many challenges. What we should note is that nature manages the one system by giving value to three aspects of it. I call these structural capital, client capital, and creative capital. In the jungle, these work together in symbiosis for the good of all. 
I'll tell you that nature supplies us with countless examples of symbiotic relationships in the jungle that show us how species can get along. A Greek word meaning to live together, symbiosis describes any type of close, long-term interaction between organisms. It's important to recognize that the benefits derived by the participants in any relationship can be difficult for anyone outside of that relationship to assess. Nature's structural capital is defined as what a structure does, what it contributes to the whole. I can use the banana tree as an example. In the jungle, a banana tree feeds many species, including human beings. The fact that I can plant a banana tree and, in a year or so, harvest 100 pounds of bananas that I can now sell in the market lets me know that this structure, banana tree, has capital value. It has monetary worth. Note that nature gives value to everything. Everything contributes something somewhere. Everything has value, even if we don't see it. Whenever something isn't directly related to human wellness, though, we tend to disregard it, saying it's just a weed. We suppose it has less value, and we're always wrong. We caused a lot of damage with that limited view. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Did you know that without an insect called the chocolate midge, you couldn't enjoy your Oreos? That insect pollinates the cacao flower, which then produces cacao beans, or chocolate. That midge lives in dense jungles on the underside of the leaves of other plants. The cacao flower releases 75 different aromas just to attract that midge so it continues to pollinate. Imagine if a farmer decides that he wants to cultivate more cacao plants and he then orders his workers to cut the weeds to make more room for his cacao. Destroying the midges' homes forces them deeper into the jungle, farther away from those attractive aromas. By cutting the weeds, that farmer loses his real workers, those midge pollinators. In nature, everything has value for something. Structural capital describes what something does, what it contributes to the whole. A weed can supply food or shelter to that insect or another, which then will pollinate other plants and supply us with fruit or something. Nature's lessons on how to see structural capital apply directly to organizations as well, showing them how to define their own structure. Wall Street might think a company's structural capital is limited to its material assets, its lands, buildings, desks, and computers. But in fact, structural capital in an organization also describes its more intangible resources, like brands, formulas, recipes, letters patent, techniques, know-how, management skills, and more. All of these assets allow the organization, whether the structure is a bank or a restaurant, to do what it does. Nature views structural capital as it applies to individuals, too. Our own structural capital includes our education, talents, skills, and abilities, those we have and those we can acquire. In an example, I'm bilingual. I'm fluent in both French and English. I'm almost trilingual. I can hablar un poco español. And because I'm a corporate trainer and animator, that increases the worth of my structural capital. This because my market potential is larger. Also, 
I'm billed as the only researcher on Earth who treks jungles in a wheelchair. And because structural capital increases its value with rarity or uniqueness in the marketplace, my value increases with that fact. If you are a world authority on something, anything, or if you are the best talent available, or if you represent a must-have product, then the world will beat a path to your door. If structural capital like yours is worth a dime a dozen, well then your capital is valued at less than one cent. I said that nature also values client capital. Client capital is the relationship that exists or can exist between systems. More properly said, client capital describes anyone or anything that contributes or consumes the structural capital. In my example, I eat bananas. So we can say that I'm a client of the banana tree. In that same light, the banana tree is a client of the compost on which it feeds. Nature gives value to the relationship between systems. For organizations, the lesson should be, yes, we have clients out there who consume our products, so we must value them. After all, they pay our bills and our salaries. But we also have clients in here who contribute to our product, so we must be mindful of them too. Our employees and our collaborators contribute to our capital worth by helping to serve our consumers. In that same way, individuals should see the people who surround them, who depend on them and on whom they depend as their client capital. Nature is telling us to add value to our relationships, those we have and those we can develop. Different from structural capital, client cap generally increases in value with numbers. That is, the more clients, the greater the worth. How many friends do you have? How many people can you influence? The number is important. Nature suggests the more the merrier. We increase the value of our client capital by nurturing our relationships. Lastly, nature gives value to its creative capital. This describes how a system is adding value to its structural capital and its client capital. Nature gives value to how a subsystem is contributing to the whole system. Creative capital is what separates a company from its competitors. It describes how one professional distinguishes himself from another. A circus was just a circus until Cirque du Soleil reinvented the product and added great value to itself. People who urge us to be positive, to shift attitudes, and to do our level best each in our own way, have discovered that nature wants us to invest in our creative capital. Adjust your day-to-day -day thinking so that you give the world the very best of yourself, and then you'll be stunned to see how the world responds. You'll find out that luck just happens. You become lucky when you discover that luck is found there where preparation meets opportunity. Imagine if you were to take your structural capital, your talents and abilities, those you have and those you can develop, and seriously worked on them. Imagine if you nurtured your relationships and looked forward to meeting more people. Wouldn't that add value to your client capital? Imagine that both of those conditions require a creative attitude, how we do things. If we were to ask nature what form of capital structural, client, or creative capital has the most value, the answer might surprise more than a few. If nature had to choose one answer to give us, 
His choice would have to be creative capital. It is your creative capital that gives value to the other two. How you think about your talents, your abilities, and your potential is what decides how well you will do in life. More than what you think about it, how you think has value. Are you ready to be lucky? Are you prepared to be a leader? Well, just invest in your creative capital. You decide who to work for and who to work with. Then you should give value to your choices. You decide how to serve your clients, how to serve your collaborators, so serve them well. I remember watching a Simpsons episode where Homer hates his job. He ends up learning to appreciate it when he discovers the real value of his client capital. He learns that he doesn't have to love the job for itself, but he has to do his level best at it for his real client, his baby daughter Maggie. Client capital is who we do it with and who we do it for. A lot of people give value to money, but money is only a way of keeping score. It's a measure. Real value is your structural capital, that is, what you do. Client capital, who you do it with and who you do it for. And creative capital, your unique touch. What gives value to your creative capital? I'll be right back. Invest in yourself. Adapting to change takes time. Studies suggest it might take up to six months to integrate a change when it's a personal choice, much longer if the change is imposed. A social change can take up to 15 years to be accepted by a majority of people. My own experience working with the disabled community confirmed that to me. It took me about 10 years to rise above the devastating effects of my accident. Suddenly paralyzed, I had a lot to learn when I was at my weakest. It took me that much time to build up my physical and mental strength sufficiently so I could start a new career as a corporate trainer. I invested in myself. After determining what my structural capital was, my passion for nature is educational, I looked to serve others. I can tell you that investing in my client capital finance Susie and my dozens of trips into the jungle, some for several months at a time. There we invested in our creative capital, gathering data directly from observing nature. Along with hundreds of hours of contemplation, we learned to develop our creativity. At a certain point, we bought a 60-acre parcel of primary rainforest where I could explore nature more deeply. I'll share two anecdotes that led to that decision. They also reveal a little bit about life in a wheelchair. My first story takes place at the Coweta National Park on Costa Rica's Caribbean coast. Susie and I had arrived there one sunny afternoon, intent on seeing the Oropendola, a very interesting bird that lives in large communities. Imagine a large blackbird, but with gold-colored tail feathers. They live as nesting pairs, and the female builds a nest woven from twigs and fibers that hangs like a large windsock 20 to 30 meters up a tree. The nest can be two meters long as the male is considerably larger than the female. Typically, there are about 30 nests in a community, 
but more than 150 nests have been recorded on some trees. As we neared the Kawita Park entrance, we were greeted by large piles of debris that blocked any semblance of wheelchair access. Spotting us and seeing my dilemma, a park ranger ran over. He apologized for the devastation caused by a recent hurricane and, sadly, he said they were just starting to clean the beach when it wasn't at all accessible for a wheelchair. I told him we had come to see Oropendolas and he brightened up, pointing to a trail away from the beach into the jungle. He said, This trail is hard-packed sand and very flat, so it will be easy for you to wheel on. If you follow it for all 45 minutes to an hour or so, you will find large colonies of them. They will be easy to see. They're hanging from the trees. So off we went. About 40 minutes into my ride, it suddenly rained. And I mean a tropical downpour, a torrential rainfall. We quickly found shelter off trail in a spot under the canopy, and so we were only moderately soaked. After several long minutes, the rain just as suddenly stopped, but any semblance of a trail had completely disappeared. The hard-packed sand was mush, and now the humidity made the heat of the day quite oppressive. On that wet mush, my wheelchair wouldn't move an inch. Susie got behind me and tried to push. The chair dug down and refused to budge. I popped a wheelie and jumped it forward, about an inch. I did it again, and now, coordinated with Susie's push, I moved forward about two inches. We did it again, and again, and again, and now I was tired and draped in sweat, and night was falling. Our jeep was still far away. What do you do, what do you do? Well, I laughed. The situation was ridiculous, and I thought to myself, how long will it take for God to find me some help? As I told you last time, God is my friend. Not a minute or two later, I see a very fit young man, shirtless but wearing shorts and sneakers, jog into view. He was running towards us with determination. I yelled, hola amigo, and waved at him. He looked up from the trail, spotted us, and ran right over. I said, you look like you enjoy keeping fit. Have I got a super workout for you to try? I explained our dilemma to him, and he was glad to help. Balanced on my back wheels only, Susie and he lifted the front end and pulled me out of the jungle before nightfall. We enjoyed a cold beer and a few laughs just after dark. By then, he knew enough about our work and my trekking jungles in a wheelchair to offer, Amigo, there has to be a better way. My second anecdote happened about six months later. This time we were headed to Tortuguero National Park, where we wanted to visit the Green Turtle Research Station. To get there, we had to sail four and a half hours up freshwater canals teemed with wildlife, like jaguars, tapirs, caimans, and countless others. We began near the city of Limon with a fireman's carry to get me aboard a small boat we hired. Then my wheelchair hoisted aboard, and everyone else climbed in. We enjoyed a slow sail and saw some of the outstanding examples of the beauty to be found in the jungle on a sunny morning. The canals end on a beach that is a major nesting site for the green sea turtle. My surprise came at the other end of that trip. Once there, the crew unloaded my chair and set it up on the beach. Then I was fireman carried from the boat to the chair where I sat. I wheeled forward about a foot or two and, to my horror, my chair frame gave out from under me. 
I was stunned to see the left front post had completely rusted out. Wow, I really got the deep meaning of rainforest. In the humidity, rust never sleeps. What do I do? What do I do? Well, I decided to have lunch. No sense panicking after all. God is my friend. Also, I knew a paraplegic in San Jose, the capital, about six or seven hours from where we were, who owned the workshop. This was before cell phones, and there were no landlines that far into the jungle. So we made plans to head back up the canal right after eating. We finally found the telephone about ten minutes before five, and this on a Friday afternoon. So I called my friend at his place of business. His secretary told me that he had just left for the weekend. He was on his way to his beach house, and as he had no phone service there, he would be unavailable until noon Monday. I was considering my options when she suddenly changed her tune. Now she excitedly told me that she heard his car, that he was back, that he must have forgotten something. A long story made short, he canceled his weekend plans and told me to meet him at his office the next morning. He'd be there with a mechanic who was also a welder. They'd fix the chair. Well, as I keep saying, God is my friend. But now I was convinced there had to be a better way for me to do my work. Think what I might, the conditions out there, the limits imposed by my wheelchair, and the landscape made me realize just how vulnerable I was, and in consequence, how vulnerable I made Susie, too. So my thinking completely shifted. Instead of chasing lessons from the jungle all over the place, I wondered how I could get the critters to come to me. I thought about wheelchair-friendly trails in an appropriate forest. So Susie and I looked into buying some land. We found a very good real estate agent and began searching. And we ended up by purchasing 60-acre piece of jungle in the Talamanca Mountains. At 400 meters altitude, we now had a wide variety of giant tree that five to 10 people with joined hands could gird and hundreds of other species of flora and fauna. On that whole property, only two small areas were flat and bare. At first, you could never imagine wheelchair access. The mountain top had a flat home site, 150 by 150 feet, looking at the Pacific Ocean to the west. It offered a spectacular view of the mountains as they plunged into the sea. The property also had an amazing particularity. A 150 by 200 foot flat and bare area, about 100 meters below the home site, down the steep eastern slope of the mountain. That backyard area jets out perpendicular from the mountainside at the height of the canopy of giant trees that surround it. That second flat area then slopes down the mountain to the jungle floor. As 85 to 90% of all species that live in a jungle forest are housed in the canopy, the treetops, you can comfortably sit in that backyard and watch dozens of animal and bird species organize themselves for life. Around that tiny plateau, we planted 500 fruit trees of 50 different species to feed the animals year-round. We also planted more than 200 species of medicinal and flowering plant and shrub to attract butterflies and birds. And we added over 100 species of exotic plants that were on the endangered list. In short, we created a garden of exceptional beauty at the level of jungle treetops and then we planted hedges as rooms for hidden observation stations. 
That property is now part of the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor, a project that links land in Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama into a permanent bridge that species can use as migration routes. Because many animals will not cross open pasture or roadways, their loss of habitat has pushed them to the edge of extinction. This bio-corridor helps. That project forced Susie and I to change our perspective from being observers of nature with no participation to observers completely immersed in the environment. We thus migrated through four phases of contemplation. One, as total observer. Two, as observer and participant. Three, participant as observer. And four, total participant. That property now spoke to us. After our backyard became a feeding station, we thought species might appreciate a little drink at the buffet table. So we planted several agua de manzanas, a tree that ponds water. Presto, it was done. It took about three years for my idea to prove itself. Let me tell you that my faith in the creative process paid off big time. Dozens of bird and butterfly species moved into our forests. As the trees came into fruit, things changed very quickly. We counted three kinds of monkey, two kinds of sloth, agoutis, tapirs, armadillos, coyotes, in fact, so many species moved in. We even saw a jaguar one day not 10 feet from us. That scene and so many others are etched in my mind for all of time. What a thrill it was. As the bushes and perennial plants went to seed, we saw parrots, toucans, motmots, mannequins, hummingbirds, and so many other species that dropped by. I saw snakes, lizards, frogs, spiders, and all kinds of beasties. One morning, I excitedly counted ten giant blue morpho butterflies in less than an hour. But as our magic forests now house so many kinds, it quickly became a routine. To link the garden to the Ocean View home site 100 meters up the mountain, Sergio, our caretaker, carved a long, winding trail. With his machete, he created a ramp easy enough for the wheelchair, especially as I now had a jungle chair built with rust-free aluminum and large dirt bike wheels. Sergio also built trails that radiated out from the garden where we added aromatics like frangipani, gardenia, ylang-ylang, and a wild rose just so the breezes could fill the park with enchanting smells. We planted exotics like fluorescent-colored vines and a great variety of ginger plants. We planted several kinds of bamboo for making furniture, timber, and food, and kapok trees that grow the very best nesting material, waterproof fibers that are as soft as silk. As planned, we had a buffet table where animals came to feast and then went home. Sitting quietly behind a hedge, I disappeared and didn't bother them at all. Oh, a howler monkey might howl once in a while, of course, but most just ignored me and went about their business. I was amazed at what I discovered. Over several years, I wrote dozens of syntheses from my observations at Mayamu, translating adaptive behavior into personal and professional strategies. Susie and I shared them with leaders in Canada and Europe. I saw that, in the jungle, species absolutely have no resistance to complying with nature's laws. With the exception of damaged humans, every creature wakes up every day 
to actualize Creator's intent that we survive and prosper. My death allowed me to see how this super-intelligent rule is animating life, all of life. I saw that I am energy in a sea of energy. We all are. But the jungle taught me how this energy is manifesting itself. I call this episode of the Jungle Podcast, The Beautiful Planet, with the subtitle, On Good Governance in Nature, because of the wondrous ways that Earth is managed. We might like to think that we're separate from nature, or somehow above it all, but simple observation belies our efforts. We are born of this world, and we are natural in it. I'll be right back. The word nature is from the Latin natura, which means the essential quality or the innate disposition of what is described. The word is used to define specific qualities that exist universally. While we humans are a part of nature, many think that our activities are somehow separate from other natural phenomena. In this presentation, I describe nature's rules from the perspective of organic molecules, where matter and mass are organized into intelligent biology, into life. I explain how we can manage a healthy, wealthy, wise, and successful life for ourselves by investing in our structural capital, our talents and abilities, those we have and those we can develop. I said to invest in our client capital, our mutualistic relationships, those we have and those we can develop. And I said to invest in our creative capital, our capacity to adapt and to overcome challenges. Like all of nature, we aren't finished yet. We can increase our value. I think my timing for the release of this information can't be better. We've never had a greater need for good governance. Wikipedia defines governance as the process of governing, whether undertaken by a government, a market, or a network, whether in a family, a tribe, a formal or informal organization, or a territory, and whether through laws, norms, power, or language. Good governance relates to the interactions and the decision-making by the actors involved in managing a collective. Good governance leads to the creation of institutions and the establishment of equitable social norms. Visit my website, www.thejungletimes.com, and in the right margin, you'll find the URL links to newspapers around the world. You can click and instantly reach the front page of the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Times of India, of Tepei, of Korea, and a few dozen others. Scan the headlines on any given day to see how world leaders are responding to the challenges we collectively face in these jungle times. You'll find real discrepancies. Today, for example, in early June 2020, the Washington Times tells a story about how the American government is managing the COVID-19 pandemic. Four months after the first case of infection was reported in the U.S., they are still debating the desirability and duration of stay-at-home orders. The article exposed an uncomfortable relationship between science and politics. Science experts describe a direction based on facts, while politicians offer nonsensical opinions. 
Politicians and scientists have competing claims on the truth, so they have divided the country. Any real solution is delayed by their debate, and the crisis is made worse. Opposed to this, the Tico Times of Costa Rica reports how that country has one of the most effective responses to this same crisis. It was the first country in Latin America to confirm a COVID-19 case, and now its five million citizens are starting to emerge from a strict self-imposed lockdown, with less than 850 confirmed cases and only 10 deaths. Two main factors worked in the tiny country's favor. It has a good health care system, and the government mobilized very effectively to provide basic services and support. Professor Juliana martinez Franzoni of the University of Costa Rica said, Costa Rica's response was faster than most Latin American countries and more disciplined. She adds, people trust the government, trust that the state can help them in a crisis, so our degree of compliance was very high. Despite its size and relative poverty, Costa Rica's government helped its people cope with and contain the virus. It managed the economic fallout, all of this while the U.S. leadership failed miserably. How can the most educated and prosperous country in history be mired in such chaos? Well, the answer is that, in a lot of ways, they're living in jungle times. Nasty and stupid people and their minions are manipulating good people to create chaos. You should see a BBC documentary called The Power of Nightmares on YouTube to understand how the manipulation works. You'll discover that politicians have learned that fear is a powerful motivator. They also know that creating problems to which they promise solutions lets them rule the world. Many people are more than ready to subscribe to a political slogan with fight cries that promise to fix the chaos. As a reaction to anger, the human body releases aggressor hormones into our bloodstream. These fuel an inner dialogue that generates a fear of out there. Most don't suspect that the real enemy, fear, is within. Aggression is our genetic fight-or-flight way of coping with stress. In spite of our inner conflicts, we must face challenges like climate change and other environmental realities. We also have to fix real economic inequalities and systemic racism. There are great disparities in education and opportunity. Add the fact that there's an aging population, unprecedented migration, and a lot more local problems to solve, you might think we're facing disaster. Many of the secrets that I learned in tropical jungles now have direct applications in the social jungle. For example, how to organize our communities and our environment for the good of all. In my book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, available on Amazon, I describe the effect of paradigm and refer to how our memory, what we learned and experienced, are etched in our brain as neurological pathways. How we link neurons dictates our view of the world, and that worldview limits our possibilities. My book explains that our beliefs about the world limit our potential in the world. If you believe that aliens or Jesus or avenging angels are going to come to Earth and fix our problems, then if you're waiting for that to happen, well, all you're doing is waiting. 
In my case, the beliefs I held since my Catholic education many years ago were instantly transformed in an out-of-body experience in the trauma of my accident. I saw the pure light animating the world and everything in it. E does equals MC squared, all is energy. E equals H, F, all is always energy. I saw how God's creation has little to do with what I believed. God's law is survive and prosper. To do it, nature gives value to three aspects of itself. We must learn to do the same. There are better ways of managing our daily affairs, but we must change in order to let that happen. We know more today than ever before. More people are educated and more have access to knowledge than ever before in human history. Our overall IQ has increased about 20 points in the last 50 years, but we still manage ourselves like grade schoolers in Lord of the Flies. Petty politics and division exist. Well, contrary to the disdain that the elite few have for we, the great unwashed masses, a majority of people respond to nurture as well as to their genetic nature. Unfortunately, many people still hold beliefs that stand in the way of their own empowerment. I think there's enough known right now to solve all the problems we face. I think most of us realize that no one is coming from somewhere else to save us. We either fix everything's ourselves, or we pass this shit on to our kids and our kids' kids. In my last episode, I told you what I learned from a marmot at Oka Provincial Park one day, that if I had any hope for a better life, then I'd have to make every effort myself. I believe human beings of every ethnicity and creed can come together in answer to the important challenges we face. A healthy and prosperous future is a common need a vital one. We can make that happen. Tune into my next Jungle Times podcast and discover just how to do that. In an episode called How Nature Manages Complex Situation, I'll explain the principles that allow leaders to emerge from the chaos. Folks, there's no other planet we can move to. We found no secret portals into other dimensions. There is no stairway to heaven. As the story is told, paradise is here on earth. To get it, though, you have to see the world as more than just meat and matter. You have to look at it as if a sea of energy, a sea of infinite intelligence. That intelligence exists in three dimensions. We can call them the known, the unknown, and the unknowable. We can set the unknowable aside because, by definition, it is not knowable, so nothing can be reasonably said about it. That leaves us with the other two dimensions to explore, the known and the unknown, and each of them has a quality that we can count on. The quality I attribute to the known is that it is local. What one person knows, another may not, and vice versa. What one culture sees, another may not. What one nation has, another does not. What one group believes, another will not. This makes for complex situations, but the good news is the known can be shared. So let's just deal with the unknown. The quality of the unknown is that it can become known. The unknown is not the unknowable. It is only the unknown, and being unknown is a temporary state. The unknown will reveal itself in time. 
I discovered that we can force the unknown to reveal itself by questioning it. The more we ask questions of it and then seek out the answers, the more the unknown becomes known. You should never be afraid of the unknown because it is only information that is just waiting to be known. I've spoken to a good many people who've gone through drastic changes in their life, and now they have something that most people don't. They understand the process of change. To try and explain it, they'll use expressions like, it's always darkest before the dawn. But others have to believe that, or not. This because survivors know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And if you know that, then you aren't afraid of the dark anymore. You just carry on right into the light. Folks, I'll speak to you next time. If you like this presentation, please give it a positive review and tell your friends. If you didn't like it, tell me. If you would like a transcript of the presentation, visit my website at www.thejungletimes.com. Thanks for listening. Adios for now. Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening.